God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Slip over to, uh, to chapter 5. We're going to read uh, uh, two more passages, I think, uh, just to give us some, some flavor as we, as we start this morning. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Last passage, and then we pray. Revelation chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on other, either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see on his face, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show me, to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. 
Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard these things and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can be here, that we are free to read your word. When we consider what your son has done in coming and dying on the cross and what his servants, our brothers in Christ, have done in writing down your word and preserving it for us, it is an amazing thing that we can be in this place and read your word freely and clearly and so we thank you that we can hear your word the scriptures say that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god and so i pray this morning as we open your word continuing a theme that was begun last week the idea of the fullness of time and the fullness and completeness of your plan i pray one that we would be encouraged with your goodness and your power, and that our faith would grow as we sang this morning, that you would give us faith to trust what you say. And that whatever the people on the news say, whether they're saying the stock market's up or down, or the sky is falling, or everything's great, or everything's terrible, whatever they're saying, we will know and trust that you are in control and that you are good, and that you have a plan, and we can trust and follow you. And so we pray that you would be exalted. We pray that Jesus would be seen and worshiped this morning, and we pray that we would be encouraged. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so so when, I, when I arrived in, in Ecuador, I had prepped uh, one or two days of teaching, and I thought, why am I going to prep for an entire week? I'm going to get there. I'm working with a translator. Our translator was fantastic, by the way. He spoke English like he was from like Idaho or Ohio. I was like, we could smuggle you into the United States, and no one would ever find out. He's an awesome, awesome kid. And, uh, and he was great. Um, he, he does this thing. When I work with a translator many times, I will, uh, I'll act out parables you know, about how um, the, the, the servant who owed such a great debt to the king, the king forgave him, and, and, and he walked away, you know, relieved, and I'll, you know, and, and I want my translator to, just like me, you know, and if he doesn't, the very first time he doesn't, I stare him down, and I get, I get things uncomfortable until he does it, and so I'm telling this parable about how he's, how he's choking the servant who owes him a lot of money, and I'm like, and I was like, make the noise. And everybody, he was translating, and he stopped, and he didn't make the noise. And I said, tell them you're being disobedient, and you won't translate. And he did, and they all laughed. And it was, it was good. It was good. He's great. I, we had a really good time with him. Uh, great Christian kid, and, uh, and just, just an excellent. So um, I, I, was, I, was, I was thinking about what I had to teach on the schedule. And uh, on the very last day... Uh, I was slotted after, after teaching 1st and 2nd Peter. My friend Anthony had to teach 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the book of Jude all in one hour. Um, talk about 
confusion and chaos there. I was like, oh, cool, I get to teach the book of Revelation. That'll be easy. Um, and I had, about, I had about 35 minutes. And so I thought, I'm going to come home. I'm preaching at Harvest. So um, let's, uh, let's, let's dig into the book. If you flip back to uh, Revelation uh, chapter 2, uh, we're going we're gonna to move through the book, hopefully kind of in a, in a linear fashion. But I want to I wanna bring uh, a bit of the level of the crazy down as we, as we interpret the book of Revelation. Because a lot of times when people open the book and they're like, look at this, it's usually like, you know, this person's the Antichrist and this is the sign of the end. And, and I've got books that were given to me that said that Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist. And um, I've got them in my office and they remind me to, to keep it calm and to relax and not to rush too quickly to say it's the end of the world because Christians have been doing that all the way since the beginning. The book is given to us for a specific purpose. If you look at the book of Revelation in chapter 2, we find that, that there is trouble coming from the outside. If you, if you look at chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient in endurance. Look at chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, when speaking of the church in Smyrna, he says to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those that say that they are Jews. They were under persecution. The church was being attacked from the outside. In verse 13, to the church in Pergamum, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Satan's throne in this instance is not a spiritual place. It's actually an idolatrous place of worship in that culture that was called Satan's throne. And the church met with incredible opposition there in that city. Verse 19 of chapter 2 says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And so the church was, was enduring persecution and pain from the outside. And as we read in verse 8, they, there was a church that felt that they had little power. They were being crushed from the outside. But Jesus reassures them of this fact that when he opens a door, no one can shut it. And when he shuts a door, no one can open it. They thought and said that they were weak. But the encouragement to these persecuted and afflicted churches is nothing from the outside can stop you. Nothing at all. Many times as the church looks to the outside today, we think, how can we survive in this culture, in this environment that's hostile to Christianity? Listen, Christianity was born in an environment that was designed to crush it to death. But the church was also founded by a man who came from heaven to take our sins upon himself and being in his very nature, God and being pure of spirit could not be held in the tomb and he was raised on the third day. Christianity is about resurrection in the face of death. You cannot stop the church. The world just can't stop, drop and roll and extinguish the flame of the church. It will not be stopped. Right Now, what will stop the church, what will crush the church, is what happens on the inside. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Their passion was 
burning out. They were hard at work, but had no internal desire to do the work anymore. Verse 14 of chapter 2, I have some things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. This is a, a false teaching. Their, their doctrine was falling apart. They were no longer believing that it was important to hold true to their doctrine. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. So the presence of, of false teachers in the midst of the church again is a, is a theme. In chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus says to the church in Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. In chapter 3, verses 15 and 17, I know your works. This is Jesus speaking to the church of Laodicea. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is another church that has lost its passion and its drive and its desire. This, I believe, is, is one of the lessons that Jesus is teaching his church. This is the occasion that spurs this letter. When Jesus appears to John and says, write to the churches, it's for this purpose, to encourage them that if they strengthen the inside, then what happens on the outside cannot affect it, cannot destroy it. It cannot be hurt. It's a, the, the church is, is an, an organism that wears invincible armor on the outside. All attacks, but, but can be destroyed from corruption on the inside. And so Jesus gives us this letter in the New Testament. This is one of those one of the, the, the lessons that I tried to hit in my sessions is that every book in the New Testament is given to the church for all time to teach it a specific lesson. Jesus arranged and preserved the letters that we have from, from Paul and from John and from Mark and from Matthew and from Luke. He gave us these specific things so that throughout all of church history, until we see him again, we will know exactly, we'll have exactly what we need to sustain us and keep us pure. And the book of Revelation is like the icing, right? And the sprinkles and the cherry on the New Testament. Now, I didn't say that down there because I don't know if they have icing and sprinkles and, and, and cherries. They eat soup every day for lunch in the middle of the heat. So I wasn't going to go there with cake, you know. Um, it's hot. And they're like, here, eat this soup. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. We don't do this at home. And they're like, they say if you eat something hot, it cools you off. I'm like, yeah, cool. All right, I don't know about that. Um, but I didn't complain when I was there. Um, what, when we come to the book of Revelation, many times what we do is we take our, we take our American to-do list, task-driven approach, and what we say is, okay, this is a roadmap of the future, and so this is going to tell me when the rapture happens, it's going to tell me details about Israel, it's going to tell me who the Antichrist is, it's going to tell me when the world is going to end, and if I do the math properly, I'll understand that it's going to end on March 17th, 2022. And that's not a prediction, by the way. Don't write that on your calendar. Anyone who sets a date, I think automatically God is going to, like, rapture shame them. And, uh, and, and it's not going to come to pass. Um, they're, they're, yeah, anyway, I don't want to get into the history of, of bad predictions. When does, aw, thank you, Addison, you're sweet. Somebody missed me. Um, 
this is, I think those things are secondary. Those are distractions. The, and, and I'm not telling you not to analyze the book and come up with your, your sense of, of how the, the end comes about, but this is what I think. The purpose of the book is there to demonstrate some big themes and to teach us some major lessons. And I wanna, I wanna run through 10 of them. I numbered my lessons this morning so that those of you who are always like, you say 10 and then you give us eight, you know? Um, you'll, you'll know, and I'll say the numbers, and, 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 and hopefully I will, I'll come through for you list-taking people. So here's what I believe that we can see when we look at the book. There are two places where the outline shows up. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, okay? We see, we see a hint of an outline for the book, all right? This is just a seed outline, and then there's a, a true outline. Jesus reveals himself to the apostle John and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And there's the seed form of the outline. God is in control of the past. And he is in control of the present. And he is in control of the future. He was and he is and he is to come. All right? Let's see. Now, zoom in and, and let's, let's see the actual outline. As Jesus is, is appearing to John and speaking to him, he says this to John, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And that's the outline of the book. This is, this is how the book rolls out. The things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So what has been seen by the verse 19 in the book of Revelation, John has been exiled. He's the oldest of the apostles at this point. We're not really sure who has, has died and gone to be with the Lord, but John is exiled on the island of Patmos. Um, the, the emperor banished him there and sent him there. He's on this island, can't leave, can't go anywhere, just surrounded by water, sitting there, worshiping Jesus and the, the church that... The churches that love him, that he's ministered to, are wondering how he is, and they are separated from him. And so Jesus appears to him on this island. This is an Isaiah-like vision, like Isaiah chapter 6, or a Moses-like vision, where, where Moses sees the Lord, and it is overwhelming in its brilliance. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation in those first verses, is not the Jesus who is beaten and bloodied, taken by Rome. It's not even the Jesus who appears to them and teaches them for 40 days. He was whole and healed and wearing a heavenly body, his, his new self, what we will be when we see him. This is the ascended back into his glory in all of his heavenly fullness, appearing to John. John is overwhelmed by what he sees. When he sees and hears Jesus, it says he falls down as if he was dead. And so that's what he's seen, and he, he writes that and records it faithfully. That's what you've seen. And then there are the things that are, and what we have in chapters 2 through 3 are letters to the seven churches. This is the ascended, powerful sovereign, in control, resurrected, saving Jesus who has come back to his church to encourage and to speak to them. And then we have letters to seven churches, seven actual churches 
They, they would, this was what was called a circular letter. John would, would write it and finish it and give it to somebody to transport. And then the letter would go from church to church to church. And they would read the whole book. And in the middle of the book would be the letter to them. Right? That's, that's the way that this works. So letters to seven churches. And Jesus speaks to the church. He gives them a clue to his identity. He says, I'm the morning star or I'm the firstborn from the dead. And then he says, this is what's good. This is what you need to fix. Persevere. Overcome. Here are my promises. If you overcome, this is how I will reward you. Every single letter works out that way. You can just grid them out. Right? You can make a little, if you're into charts, you can make a a chart like that, and you can put all the different verses and all the different pieces of what Jesus says to them. We get to chapter 4, and that is where the book shifts to those things that are to take place after this, right? So here's the outline of the book of Revelation so far. John appears to Jesus. No, Jesus appears to John. Been out of the pulpit. Been out of the pulpit for a month, right? Like, hopefully this is not the worst thing. That, that's, hopefully that's the worst thing that I say this morning. Woo! All right. Um, yeah, so, so Jesus appears to John. John writes that down. Jesus says, I have a message for the seven churches that you minister to. Write that down. And then he says, and now I'm going to show you what's going to be. Why does Jesus show him what's going to be? Is it so that for 2,000 years, Christians could obsess and fight over the exact details of the future? No. No, Jesus tells us what's going to happen so that we have a comprehensive picture of the fact that God will be exalted, that evil will be thrown down, that it will be decisively defeated, that the future is not undetermined, that it's not like, hey, if we get enough people on our side, if we score enough points, if we don't get too many penalties called against us, we'll win, right? And then it's like, what happens if we win? Maybe we get free coffee, right? You know? No, this is, this is God will decisively, ultimately, victoriously triumph. Or as some scholar has said, the book of Revelation proves that God will be God and everyone will know it. It's the decisive victory that the church has been looking for, hoping for, promised, and waiting for, and does not see at this present moment and has not seen since the moment that Jesus ascended. When we look into chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, we have a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice that there is a scroll that is sealed up and that they're looking for someone who's worthy enough to open the scroll. Who can crack this thing open and begin the end? Who can tell us about the decisive victory of God? And there's no one who can be found. And John, who's a witness to this, is overwhelmed by the emotion of it. And he begins to weep. And the, um, the elders who are surrounding the, the throne, there are 24 of them. Who are they? I don't know. Um, and so, so they're surrounding the throne. One of them stops and is like, stop crying. Weep no more. We've got someone who can open the scrolls. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. Now, uh, I was watching the, uh, this, this documentary describing the teachings and the inner workings of the Koresh organization a number of years ago. And 
they put on the screen, while they were talking about the seven seals, they put on the screen a, a scroll, and it had seven seals on it, right? And I was like, that's wrong. That's not what it looks like. That's what we think when we think of the scroll, that, that the scroll has seven seals on it. Um, this is what I think is going on there, that the scroll is, as it's written, okay, a long sheet of paper, uh, there's, some, there's some writing on it, and then you roll it up a little bit and put a seal. And then you roll it up some more and put another seal. And you roll it up some more and put another seal. And there's seven of them inside this document. Now, this is the way that the Romans apparently would send classified documents. If you were like, oh, I just want to take a peek and see what's inside the document, right? If you cracked a Roman seal, you know what would happen to you? Death. They would kill you. You don't break a Roman seal. This is part of the reason why it's ridiculous that the, that the disciples would have gone to the tomb and cracked the Roman seal and, and stolen Jesus' body from a squadron of heavily armed, heavily disciplined soldiers who apparently fell asleep on guard duty, right? That's their story. You know what the penalty is for falling asleep on guard duty? Death! This is how Roman kept, Rome kept their standards very high and dominated the world for a thousand years, right? So we have this scroll with these, with these seals on it, right? And, and whoever can open this scroll can declare the victory and the triumph and the ascendancy of God and, 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 and begin the end. And the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, is called to open the scroll. And so what we have in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, is the opening of the first seal. And as we move through chapter 7 and chapter 8, right, we have the opening of the seven seals, right? And as each seal is opened, the plan of God moves forward. There is, there is a step forward and, and more of, of God's judgment and the conflict that it, it has with the world of man moves forward, right? When you get to the end and the seventh seal is opened, you know what there are? Seven trumpets, blowing of seven trumpets. That takes us from chapter 8, verse 2, to chapter 11, verse 19, when the seventh trumpet is blown. Inside of the seven trumpets, right, or when the seventh trumpet is blown, there are seven bowls. In chapter 12 to 15, we have a, an intermission or a center section where the conflict is made plain, where the world is laid bare and is leveled out and all things are simplified. There are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who defy God and refuse to worship him, who refuse to acknowledge that they have a need for him, that they need him in their life, that they need him to complete them, to empower them. They need him in terms of a, of a leader and a guide, there are groups that refuse to acknowledge that, and there are those who worship. We see that in, in 12 through 15, laid out over and over, that the conflict is, is clear, that there are those who defy and those who worship. In chapter 16, we see the seven bowls poured out. What is the deal with all of the sevens? Seven is, is set up as a number in the book of Revelation that, that uh, demonstrates completeness or fullness or everything, right? There are seven churches. There are seven lampstands. There are seven stars. There are seven seals. And the idea here is that this is it, right? There's not going to be any other plan except this one. 
and that, that there's not going to be anything left over at the end. Seven seals are opened up, like the plan is fully revealed, and it is rolling along, and the seven trumpets are, are blown, and judgment is coming, and full judgment has come. And then there is punishment and wrath in the bowls, and all judgment and punishment and wrath are being poured out. Chapter 17 and 18 are a confrontation with the great two idols of mankind. Chapter 17, false religion is condemned. Human beings have been trying since the garden to come up with ways to cover our shame and our guilt, to fill in our incompleteness, to, to solve this aching wound in ourselves. Some have come to God and heard him speaking to them in his word through Jesus Christ, and they find completeness. Everything else is just a construct of man designed to try to overcome that need. All of that is condemned in chapter 17. In chapter 18, we then see life without God condemned. Materialism a focus on living and enjoying and pleasure that is disconnected from the will and the way of God. And that, too, is torn down. And the people of the world weep as, as the world is, is judged and torn down. In chapter 19, we're introduced to the marriage of the Lamb, where Jesus comes to collect his church. He rescues his people. He slays his enemies. He conquers the nations of the earth and sets up his kingdom. And then in Revelation 20 to 22, we see the kingdom of God and our final state. And that's the book. You thought this was going to take like four hours, right? I only had like 35 minutes and I had to do a translation, so I only had half as, as much time. Now, the questions generally uh, boil down to, okay, when does the rapture happen, right? Um, the, the abyss is open, right? And there's these bug creatures that come out, and they've got, like, long, beautiful blonde hair and women's faces and scorpion tails, and, you know, they fly and they sting people. What is that, right? You know, or they say, uh, one question that was answered is, who is, what are the nations of Gog and Magog? What are they? And my answer to every single question is, I don't know. I mean, I have an opinion, but honestly, I don't think that's why the book exists, to give us a roadmap so we can say, oh, March 17th, 2022. I don't think that's the purpose for which the book is given. The book is given to give Christians a solid assurance of the victory of God and the knowledge that Jesus is in control and that all things are working according to his plan and that they are not safe in the world. They are safe in his hand and in the midst of his plan. There are some really interesting, strange things in this book. Look at Revelation 5, verse 5. Um, one of the elders speaks to John when he begins to weep. And he says to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah, right? And so we're introduced to this idea. We're so familiar, some of us, with some of these texts that we don't even notice the disconnect or the oddness that happens 
But we're supposed to feel this kind of strange, what's going on here feeling when we read the book of, of Revelation. I looked and I saw the, I mean, I, I heard the line of the tribe of Judah. But then look at verse 6. It says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. Isn't that interesting? I heard a lion and I saw a lamb. What we're being told by, by John is that what we're looking at is highly symbolic. That he is, he is telling us a message. It's not that these things aren't true. It's that we need to dig carefully and say, what am I being told? And, and why is it being told in this way? Chapter 7, verse 4. Right? This is another one. People are always like, what are the 144,000? And you can look it up on the internet, and you can probably read until the day that you die. And you'll find, you know, 72 different opinions. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. And then he goes on in verses 5 through 8. 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. I just, I love, I took a typography class in high school. I was going to, like, design things for the rest of my life, like packages. And then I was like, no, this is not fulfilling. But that 12, that little block of text right there to me is just so, it's so beautiful. I love it. Just how, how it, it lays out. You see God's precision in his order, right? Those are the ones who are sealed. Verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, right? He hears 144,000. After this I looked, and what does he see? A multitude beyond number. No one could number it. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. What is John saying to us in verses 4 through 8? That every single person whom God has called to himself, who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and said, I am a sinner and I need to be saved. Every single person is valuable and important and they will be saved and not disappointed. That's what's said right there the 144,000 who are sealed. And then he looks, and you know what he sees? More than 144,000 people, a number that cannot be numbered. You're part of a massive group of people who are being saved that no one could number. The mercy and amazing grace of God is boundless. But you know what? You are important and valuable as an individual, and you are numbered, and you can be assured that you will be saved. We're being told these things in a, in, a, in a highly symbolic way that drives these points home. Okay, ten themes from the book of Revelation, right? Things that, that John's just like, feel this, know this. There's biblical imagery that's gathered up, drawn together, and summed up, right? We've heard about lions and messiahs in the Old Testament over and over and over again. But here we see the lamb and the lion true identity of them. All biblical imagery, it's, it's gathered and summed up here. Prophecy is, is summed together. There are prophecies in the Old Testament. We were looking at one in Sunday school this morning that's, that's kind of like Messiah's coming and he's going to fix the earth, but he's also going to die. Like this, this jumble, not really sure how this is all going to happen. The book of Revelation is like Jesus will return and he will make the world right. He will fix all the problems with the nations and those who have, have refused to put their faith and trust in God will be judged and those who have trusted in him will be saved and all will be right. Prophecies are made clear here. Not specific things. 
but ultimate things. The conflict is made plain here. It's no longer the Assyrians or the Babylonians. Now it is those who are inside of the heavenly city and those who are outside. And who gets inside? Who lands inside of the city of God? Revelation 12, verse 10 says this, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Who is on the inside? Those who put their faith and trust in Christ whose sins have been canceled out by the perfect and righteous blood of the Lamb of God, those who hold fast to him. And so we see the saints protected, kept, drawn to God in the midst of this conflict. That's number four. So we have biblical imagery, prophecy, conflict. We have uh, the saints. We see the heavenly Jerusalem. We see what began in a garden with a small community, just these two people of God, ends in a city full of people in the heavenly Jerusalem. We see the judgment of Satan and evil, number six, that Satan is decisively dealt with, that all those who oppose God ultimately receive judgment from him, and that death itself is conquered. And then we see books, number seven, and the book. All people are called to account for all the things that they've done. This, this idea fills me at first with a sense of dread, but then it gives way to relief. The books record all of the good and all of the evil that we've ever done. And those books, man, I think that you know, the life of Keith Myers, probably several books recording wrong after wrong after wrong after wrong. And it says that we were judged by what happens in the books. But then it says if anyone's name was found in the book, in the book of life, in the book of the Lamb, those people receive life. The book focuses on the gospel. We see point eight over and over again, Christ's victory. We see this made plain that, that Jesus is the star at the beginning of the book, but as the book unfolds, that he is seen in greater glory. He's the one who can open the scrolls, but he's also the one who rides out to rescue his people, and he defeats Satan, and he defeats the beast, and he sets up a kingdom, and he reigns in the middle of the city. His return is the great hope and joy of the Christian. And so the main themes... Number eight is Christ's victory. Number nine is Christ's return. Number 10 is the main focus and the theme, the lion, the lamb, Jesus Christ. The focus is not on decoding and figuring out who the insect beings are, right? And saying like, is that Russia being excluded from the 2018 Olympics? You know, is this a sign of the, the prophecy of the end? Because there are people online saying all kinds of crazy stuff. And then they're like, send me $29.95 and I'll send you my DVDs. You know what you're going to know after that? You're going you're to not understand the book any better because the people that they said are the bad guys are not going to be the bad guys. 
It just doesn't work out that way. What we see throughout the book is a broad sweep of the victory of God. We see a culmination of God's promise that he solves ultimately what pains and ails us most. That's our sin. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, God promises to Abraham that he'll build a great nation and that that nation will produce a blessing that will bless all the nations of the earth. And that blessing is Jesus Christ. We see a fulfillment of what's promised in Numbers 14.21. God says, as surely as I live, the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And at the end of the book of Revelation, we see a new heavens and a new earth in which holiness and righteousness dwells. And that ought to be the hope and the passion of the people of God. In Genesis, God creates, but in Revelation, God ultimately redeems the heavens and the earth. In Genesis, we see the sun and the moon and the stars. In Revelation, there is no need for them because God dwells in the midst of his people. You realize that, right? That's the sun, the moon, the stars, light bulbs. It's all just a symbol of the fact that we need God. And when we have him in his fullness, we don't need the props anymore. I walk in here a lot of times on Sunday mornings. You know, the bands come in, they're, they're working. And I'm like, I walk around the building, I flip all the lights on. You know, Now we've got motion sensors. But there's still some switches that need to be turned on. But I'm always like, let's fill this place with light. Right? I'm not going to need that in heaven. We're going to have light. Real light. You know what? There's never going to be a bill. How about that? It's going to be great. You're going to love it. In Genesis, we see paradise lost. In Revelation, we see paradise made permanent and paradise permanently regained. In Genesis, humans flee from God. In Revelation, God dwells among them. In Genesis, the tree of life is removed from people's grasp. When Jesus comes to earth, he is put to death on a tree to give us life and in Revelation, access is restored to the tree of life. I believe when we look at the book of Revelation, we are to rest in it. Because as we read it, we're to feel it and to know it and to enjoy it and to rest in it and to delight in it. I was, I was talking to uh, the, the, the people in the class and saying how the images are supposed to be savored and, and, and enjoyed and I came to the place where, uh, where the voice of Jesus, this is in Revelation 15, yeah, Revelation 1, 15, his voice is like the roar of many waters. And I said to them, do you know what the roar of many waters sounds like? And the day before, when my friend Kevin was teaching, it began to rain. And at first, Kevin just had to raise his voice a little bit. But then it started to rain more. And then he had to raise his voice a little bit more. And then it started to rain even higher. And now he had to shout a little bit. And then somebody got up and tried to get him a microphone, right? And they started turning up the amp, right? But soon, you couldn't even hear him over the amplifier. The rain was so loud. Because they don't have a nice roof like this. They have that, that corrugated plastic. That was what was over, overhead. It was so loud they couldn't even hear that's what Jesus' voice sounded like. Something like that. You know? And so there we are in Ecuador, and the rain just goes on and on. We lost an hour and a half of class because the rain was just too loud and, and too long. 
when Jesus speaks, the voice is, is like the loudest water you've ever heard, drowning out all other voices, showing the tremendous power of God. That's what we're supposed to take away from the book of Revelation. We're supposed to, we're supposed to read this and to say, God is in control. I can, I can trust this. I can, I can rest here. God says he is the Alpha and the Omega. He was in control of the beginning and he's in control of the end. He is and he was and he is to come. He is the Almighty. And so the book ends with this conclusion. God knocks on the door of our hearts. He knocks over and over and he says, Restore the relationship. Return to me. Love me and love your neighbor. Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Salvation is free to all who come to God. People fear this book. They're like, you know, well, what if I'm disappointed? No, the book is designed to remove all and any disappointment from us. The book is written and given to us to encourage us to say those who simply trust in Jesus and hold fast to him will be saved. Amen. Whoever the Antichrist is, whenever the world's going to end, the world could end in 10 minutes or 10 years or a thousand years. And you know what? Those who trust in Christ are safe. And so make peace and open the door. Revelation 22, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You want forgiveness of sins? You want salvation? You want freedom? Jesus says, come take it. There's no trap, right? It's not like, you know, you go to grab it and like he moves it away from you. It's not like that. There's no games here. He says, open the door. And he also says, hold fast. Revelation 2 Sorry, Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. John echoes and speaks the words that we ought to speak. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus is the star. He is the center. I'll tell you, going to, to a place like Ecuador, you look at what we have here. You know, we got a nice projector. We got these comfy seats. We sat in those plastic chairs that they sell at Walmart that like you put on your lawn, you know. That's what they have in their church, and they stack them and unstack them, right? And, and, and these pastors, they, they think like, oh, man, if we could just get a building and put tile on the floor, if we could just get a building and put concrete on the floor, if I could just get rooms to teach my kids Sunday school, right? And here we are in America, and we're like, we need more parking, we need this, we need that, we need this, we need that. Yeah, we ought to do things that we need to do and expand and improve our facility so that we can expand our ministry. We ought to do the things that we can to take care of what God has trusted to us. But you know what? It's not what we have that determines whether or not we are successful. It, it, what determines our success is our faithfulness to the task with which we've been commissioned with. 
task is to make Jesus the star, to keep him at the center, to focus on faithfulness. Paul says it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So I was telling these guys, look, don't think about projectors. Yeah, you ought to get the best music you can possibly have. But if you don't have good music, and there are pastors there, guy, one guy, he had a guitar, and he could barely pick out any notes, and he could barely sing, and he was singing and leading the worship. Amen. Listen, pastor, you have the word of God. Just preach it. That's what you're going to be judged on, not whether or not you can win Ecuadorian Idol. You know, <laughs> That's not the determiner of your success. Speak to the needs of souls and hearts. Be funny if you can occasionally, but don't stand up and tell jokes. Your salvation is in Jesus. He is the product. He is the goal. He is the focus. He ought to be the obsession. He ought to be the meaning in every sermon. He ought to be the appeal at the end of each one. And it ought never be the pastor in focus or the people in focus. It ought to be the people's need in relation to God. And so hold fast to the truth, hold fast to the task, and invite people to Jesus. We closed with this. Their victory is here. They have it in the word. They own it. They can memorize it, know it, love it. And so they ought to trust it. Why does God tell us so many future facts? We'll close with this verse from Peter. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3.10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And then Peter says this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and even hasting the day of his coming. This is what I said, and then it got translated, and it didn't rhyme. I said, God gives us future facts to inform our present acts. And I don't know how you say it in Spanish, but it didn't rhyme, and I just I felt internally disappointed, but I thought, it'll preach in America. Why does God tell us the future? He tells us the future so that we will be confident that obedience and trust in the gospel right now is the best thing. So be confident in the grace of God, Christian. Be assured of your victory. And if you're not a believer, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He is the lamb slain to save you. Let's pray and then sing a final song together. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness toward us. We pray that you would bless this word as we've heard it. We pray that it would reach good soil and that it would bloom and blossom and continue to grow. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to minister to my brothers and sisters. I pray that we would be assured of our victory. It is good to study this book and to, to develop a structure and a timeline for the future. But I pray that we would not be so obsessed with the details that we would miss the main message. That you are God. You are good. You are in control. You are to be trusted. And one day, the whole world will know it. And so let us love and worship you and let us share your grace with those who need to hear it. We pray this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together as we close. Just a